Thanks for coming in today, Allie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Right now, I am a biology major at Cal Poly with a concentration in physiology and anatomy. Oh, and how's that? It's been so great. Um, coming into college, I was excited to learn more about the human body because I want to go to PA school, and so I majored in biology. What I didn't realize was how much we were going to learn about the environment and all of the factors that can affect it and its health. That's what brought me here today, actually. Oh, yeah. The Quest Project you've been so excited about. Care to tell us more about it? Of course. Um, today, I'd like to talk about climate change. More specifically, where does climate change lie on the national agenda? Now, we all know that climate change has been a prevalent topic in today's society. However, it seems that people still fail to realize how severe the situation really is. Of course, when I say people, I really mean the American government. Although, I believe that the actions of the government are also indirectly correlated to the actions of its citizens, and therefore, we are all responsible. Wait, sorry. Can you go back and explain how the decisions of Americans are indirectly affected by the government? Well, recent actions such as the withdrawal of the U.S. from the 2015 Paris Agreement in a way downplays the urgency of preventing the global surface temperatures from rising 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. And pre-industrial levels is referring to the conditions of the world before the Industrial Revolution, which was a period of time that marked the beginning of what would now be considered global warming. Now, this in turn could lower morale and set the movement against climate change back by several years, which is why it has been such a controversial topic. When I heard about this, I wondered, what motivates the government to make these decisions? Is it really in the best interest of the people? Which, which brings me back to the reason I am here today. Today I'm going to break down that topic by first discussing the history of the Earth and its relationship with climate change. That way you'll have a little bit more background knowledge about the subject. And then I will cover the actions of the government for and against the anti-climate change movement. And finally, I will relate my research to current events. All right, I'm ready when you are. Many scientists who study climate change use the events in the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, abbreviated as PETM, to predict the future of our planet because of our similar circumstances. The PETM is described by the Advancing Earth and Space Science Organization to be one of the most abrupt and transient climatic events in Earth's history, which took place about 55 million years ago. Similar to today, it was associated with warming in the ocean and atmosphere, changes in ocean chemistry, and reorganization of the global carbon cycle. These increased ocean temperatures, followed by oxygen deprivation, eventually led to the extinction of about 30-50% to 50 of plankton biota and other orga um, ocean organisms, which are all important to the survival of all organisms. These conditions were so severe that it also led to a pulse in speciation, or migration, amongst mammalian um, groups. Keep in mind that speciation is synonymous to evolution. So for evolution to occur, the environmental conditions were so unlivable that the majority of the least fit animals died, leaving the animals with higher fitness to breed. While this is an advancement for those individual species that were fortunate enough to live, this is but a glimpse into what was experienced by life during that time. Interestingly enough, I found that some scientists, such as the writers of the book Science, 
still believe that this event in history wasn't accurate enough to compare to current times. <laughs> what? Wait, so how are these not bad enough? Yeah, their reasonings for this were frightening. They believed that the PETM lacked the severity of current rate of change. In other words, the warming of the planet now is happening much, much faster than it did during the PETM. Instead, they now compare their studies to the end Permian mass extinction, an event that occurred about 250 million years ago. Appropriately, it is also referred to as the Great Dying, because it led to the extinction of about 70% of terrestrial life and 90% of marine life. As opposed to today, the cause for global warming back then was the eruption of the Siberian Traps, the northern part of Pangaea, which consisted mainly of volcanoes. Unfortunately, the effect is still the same as today, given the Industrial Revolution and humanity's large reliance on carbon-producing technology. Much like the end Permian, the world has been experiencing a large loss in sea ice, increased sea levels, and oxygen loss because of the carbon emissions produced through the use of modern technology. By 2050, the Arctic is predicted to lose all of its ice and become a vast wasteland of water, which seems unrealistic, but when you look at the facts, according to NASA, prior to 2012, ice was lost at a steady rate of about 83.8 billion tons per year. After 2012, the amount of ice lost per year has tripled to 241.4 billion tons. Wow. Now, all I'm thinking about is all the other cute little animals that live in the Arctic. Yeah, well, 250 million years ago, this continued release of carbon gases led to the death of nearly all the corals in the ocean and it led to the prolonged recovery of most biological species by about 5 million years. Life essentially had to start all over again. Scary thing is, this is already happening, as I've already mentioned. So it's not wrong to be thinking about the animals right now. In fact, I'd be worried if you weren't. The majority of the Great Barrier Reef is either dead or dying. Some studies by Dr. Makiko Kainuma, who is currently a chief of, um, of the Climate Policy Assessment Research Section at... NIES says that there's a chance that the reefs could recover, but with an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius or more, the coral bleaching process may be permanent, leaving the survival of the reefs even more uncertain. Well, that was a lot to take in. I didn't realize how serious this uh, really was. Is there any way we can help? Like, what have we done to prevent this? Well... The United States has already done some things to combat climate change. In April of 2016, President Obama included the U.S. as one of the signatories to the Paris Climate Agreement, along with 197 other countries, including China, who are one of the main producers of carbon emissions in the world, besides from the U.S. Wait, I'm sorry. Could you go back and explain what the Paris Climate Agreement is? I mean, I've heard of it several times before, but I don't really understand what it means. Yeah, so um, the Paris Climate Agreement was, according to an environmental researcher at Australian National and various others, to be the first truly global climate change agreement to be created because of the participation from the majority of the world. As I said before, 197 countries have already signed it. The goals of this agreement are to stabilize the level of greenhouse gases being limited, um, emitted to a level that would 
hopefully avoid dangerous climate change as I described before in the PETM and the NPERMIAN. Now, to do this, the countries that signed the agreement also submitted national plans that explain what greenhouse gases or other related targets they hope to achieve. Um, and they submitted this information to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, also known as the UNFCCC. All of these plans contribute to the global mission of preventing the, um, the global surface temperatures from reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But earlier you mentioned that you would talk about what the government has done for and against climate change. What did you mean by that? Yes, so um, that takes me back to my other point. Despite signing the Paris Climate Agreement in 2016, President Trump's administration announced that the United States was going to withdraw from the agreement by the year 2020. This spiked a lot of controversy throughout all of America and the globe because of America's large contribution to the greenhouse gases produced in the atmosphere. Now, as a biology major, I was also outraged when I first heard about this. I was thinking, what could possibly be more important than the Earth? I mean, we all live here. However, further research into President Trump's decision provided me with a little bit of insight regarding his somewhat questionable actions. And what do you mean by somewhat questionable actions? Well, President Trump's decision to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement is economically warranted. One of the main solutions that countries are going to try to implement is green technology. Technology that minimizes the carbon gases we produce by using clean energy sources rather than, say, fossil fuels. This solution, however, is very income-based. Green technology will definitely help the, um, reduce the greenhouse emissions. However, it is also important for governments to continue growing economically. Investing in green technology can put a halt on economic growth in developed countries, such as the U.S., because of its high initial costs, and it can also be detrimental to developing countries. Uh, why is that? Some developing countries don't have the means and incentives to adopt this new innovative technology without the help of developed countries, such as the U.S., which would further add to our cost. <clears throat> in order to sustain these methods, Professor Liu from Australian National, which I mentioned earlier, and his various colleagues estimated that CO2 taxes must increase at a fairly high rate, about 5% every year, to sustain reductions in emissions as the U.S. economy grows. Even China's economy is likely to take a hit by this agreement because they're predicted to have a GDP that's about 1.5% lower than the perspective baseline in 2030. On top of all of that, the United States is on course for only a 15-19% to 19 reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2025, which is considerably short of its 26-28 to 28 commitment in the Paris Agreement. It is for these reasons that people question the benefits of committing our resources to this cause. They like to feel assured that their sacrifices will pay them back in a tangible way, which doesn't make them bad people at all. In fact, it makes them smart. Ah, uh, okay. I see what you're saying. So if the U.S. backs away from the Paris Climate Agreement, like President Trump is doing, then we are essentially saving our economy. Well, yes and no. See, that question, the question that many people have, only thinks about the short-term future. Many of the reports that provide the research I laid out for you also compare the short-term costs and benefits to the long-term costs and benefits, which I still have yet to talk about. 
First, remember when I told you that the CO um, CO2 taxes are predicted to rise about 5% every year in response to the growing economy? Well, the revenue from this will eventually go back to households via lump sum rebates. The additional household income that comes from the rebate will raise consumption for several years, or until the higher tax slows the economy. But then the higher tax is going to lead to reduction in investment, because the after-tax return on capital, on capital in fossil fuel sectors is going to fall. This means that investment in renewables is going to increase, even though the investments in fossil fuel companies are going to decrease. While this means that the total investment is going to fall in the short run because, well, fossil fuel intensive companies do dominate short run investment, this decrease in investment is going to cause these firms to reduce their retained earnings, which is basically profit that isn't given back to shareholders or households. And in turn, it will boost consumption even more. The fall in real interest rates that res result from this will cause forward-looking households to discount their future incomes at a lower rate, which is also going to further increase consumption and raise overall wealth in the country. Yes, I realize that that is a lot of um, terms that sometimes I, it took me a while to know, but basically what I'm trying to say is what the country loses for a short while will come back eventually, and the money will be going to more renewable resources rather than fossil fuel sectors. The developing and lower income countries that I also mentioned would also benefit because by investing in modern green technology, they would be substantially upgrading their current technology, which is something that was bound to happen, but in a more sustainable way. Knowing that we would be earning the money back, I wondered if there were other possible motivators behind President Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. What do you mean by other possible motivators? I didn't think that there could be, but then I came across one beautifully written article, Unlearning Despair, by journalist and co-founder of The World at One Degree Celsius, Daniel Macmillan Voskobonik, where he talks about the relationships between Earth and humans. He delves into the reasons why the world's governments are, and I quote, failing to meet their own pledges for action and find themselves with their backs towards reality. Climate change is, as he describes it, a civilizational crisis, a crisis that developed through a neglect and misunderstanding that global warming is merely a small setback on our way to progress, when in fact, it could mean the downfall of everything humans have strived for. Macmillan provides some sociological insight that can be used to explain President Trump's decisions in regards to the Paris Climate Agreement. Conversation regarding climate change usually circulates in a small circle, which tends to be policymakers and scientists. Now, these policymakers promise to incite change, and yet we rarely see these promises fulfilled. Why? Well, according to Macmillan, the people who have the most power to create change also have the most to lose. These losses are in the form of vested interests, which can be placed at risk in attempts to solve our ecological crisis. They make most of their money by controlling energy, because most of the wealthiest companies are involved in the fossil fuel sectors. To combat global warming would mean giving up their power and wealth, which means that their decisions could be extremely biased, regardless of who they represent, like 
the relationship between policymakers with the citizens of the United States. The power and wealth of a select few should not influence this, the fate of the world. So, what would happen when the U.S. backs out of the Paris Climate Agreement? To the environment, I mean. Well, best case scenario, the global average temperature is predicted to rise by 2.8 degrees Celsius over the pre-industrial level, which is already above the 1.5 degree to 2 degrees Celsius target set by the Paris Climate Agreement. At this point, a lot of damage will be inflicted on the environment. The ocean and marine life are likely to receive the worst of it. Worst case, global average surface temperatures rise over 3.4 degrees Celsius, if not more. So what you're saying is that we didn't actually have to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. And leaving the Paris Climate Agreement would essentially ruin the environment. Um, basically, I guess, if you wanted to really simplify it. But first, we left on the basis that the agreement would hurt our economy, which we found to be only true short-term. And America is the deciding factor when it comes to whether the Paris Agreement will make it or break it, the environment, so, so to speak. Not America specifically. Any country withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement can affect its likelihood for success. But considering the U.S.'s large hand in the situation, our decisions weigh more heavily. For example, our withdrawal sets a bad example to other countries considering our major involvement in producing carbon emission. It could lead to delays in other countries meeting their pollution abatement commitments or simply refusing to fulfill them because of how futile the goal will seem once we start stop contributing. The U.S. withdrawal itself wouldn't have a large effect on global carbon emissions, but it's the cascading effect it has in other countries that will jeopardize future global climate cooperation. Developing countries need the help of developed countries in order to obtain the green technology they need to meet their abatement statements. Considering the U.S. plays a big part in this trade, the chances of them receiving technology that they need is lowered. Preventing climate change requires global cooperation, something that the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, seems to recognize. According to the Washington Post, he donated $15 million to the funding of the Paris Agreement to make up for what the U.S. promised to contribute. He actually claimed that Americans will honor and fulfill the Paris Agreement by leading from the bottom up. Wow. Talk about making a statement, huh? <laughs> I know. A statement that agrees with Macmillan's ideology from Unlearning Despair, which I also mentioned earlier. People everywhere need to combine our collective wisdom and fight this problem. We've relied too long on other individuals when we, ourselves, combined with others, have the most power to inflict change. Global warming affects our lives more closely than you would think. Oh, really? How so? Well, recent events such as COVID-19 have brought to light just how much we are affected. Now, because of this pandemic, as most of us know, Countries have resorted to stay-at-home orders, travel bans, which include traveling by plane or across state lines if it's unnecessary, and bans on social gathering. All of which, if I am being honest, suck because I am a very social person. But what we didn't expect was to see the way the environment bounced back. According to Dr. Frederick Dufail, 
a professor in medicine and a researcher at the University Hospital of Clarence. The presence of nitrogen gas, which is a clear indicator of air pollution, has decreased substantially from the environment. This decrease first began at the source of the pandemic, which is Wuhan, China. It eventually spread throughout the world as these stay-at-home orders and travel bans took place. Alright, but what does this mean in terms of us as humans? While the world was, or is, so focused on the surplus of deaths due to the pandemic, we remain blind to the fact that deaths related to poor air quality have decreased by 6%. Air pollution is correlated to many illnesses, which include but are not limited to aggravated asthma, bronchitis, emphysema, lung and heart disease, and respiratory allergies, all of which affect a large majority of people. I'm sure we all know at least two people with one of these illnesses. And in 2012, there were 193,000 deaths in Europe alone from airborne particulate matter, or air pollution. Since then, the air quality has only decreased, up until the pandemic. At the time that this article was written, there were 3,158 reported deaths from COVID-19 in China, and 4,607 worldwide. In this short span of time, covid 19 paradoxically reduced the total amount of deaths in the world by improving the air quality and drastically decreasing the amount of air, um, air pollution-related deaths. Oh my. So, wow. I never would have guessed that. I know. Climate change has been around so long that illnesses have developed from that alone. This further explains the urgency to fight it, if not for the planet, then for the future gener generations of humans. If the withdrawal of the U.S. from what could be the solution to climate change, based on the opinions of a small circle of policymakers, proves anything, it is this. The absence of meaningful action has led humanity into a hole that will consume us. People have believed that the power to enact change lies in the hands of the rich and powerful. Yet the rich and powerful, such as the government, have certain biases that don't always decide in favor of the majority. Contributing to the Paris Climate Agreement is in our best interest. A global effort is what it takes to combat climate change, but all it takes is the willingness to be brave and challenge those in power. We decide our own future. Well, thank you so much for this. Uh, it was a very enlightening conversation, Allie. I could not have said your message better myself. Hopefully more people will hear this and perhaps act on it as if you have talked about it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. I hope that people get the message I'm trying to get across. All right. Next interview today on English 145, The Hive, is going to be Ryan Reynolds talking about the experience with aliens.